How are you? Isn't spring great? I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It just changes our attitude. It's good to be here. I've, I've been told uh, that I love to tell stories, and that's pretty true. And, you know, some might think that that's kind of a good thing about me, but then I always worry that others may tire of my stories. You could ask my children about that. <laughs> and, then, and then at my age, I'm always in the back of my head, I'm wondering, have I already told them this story, you know? And so, so this morning, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story, a story of how I began my journey of following Jesus. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's really the traditional story. I did not surrender my life to Jesus at, in a church service. I'd never been to one of those. I didn't go forward at an evangelistic meeting, and I didn't say the sinner's prayer with uh, somebody that was witnessing to me, like, like my wife did. I was... Um, 20 years old, a college student, and I surrendered my life to Jesus all alone, by myself, out in the woods, in the redwoods. And I, I remember down on my knees saying something like, well, Jesus, if you are who they say you are, then you can have my whole life. Now, I... I, I didn't know much at the time. I had gone to Catholic school, and so I knew the, the basics of Jesus' life, and, and a couple of people had told me things about the gospel. But the, the greater implications of this whole gospel thing were, were really unclear to me at that time. A couple weeks later, I think that's how long it was, I, I was driving in my truck and I picked up a hitchhiker, and that's what you did in the 60s and early 70s. And, and he noticed sitting on the bench of my truck was a Bible. And he, he asked me, he says, well, are you a Christian? And I'd never been asked that, and, and I'd never made that confession. I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, oh, well, then you, you need to go out uh, and meet these Jesus freaks that are out at this old Coast Guard station uh, where, where they were living and there was an actual live, uh, functioning lighthouse on the bluff over the ocean. And so, so I took him up on that suggestion. I went out there. And I was a kind of a loner at that time in my life. So that was pretty intimidating, scary thought to go and meet these people. And so, uh, you know, I made a couple of drive-bys, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and was afraid to go in. And eventually I went in to meet them. And I discovered something that was refreshingly surprising to me. Uh, I met a bunch of young people just like me who had decided to surrender their lives to Jesus and had fallen in love uh, with Jesus and were trying at the best of their ability to live this Jesus kind of life together uh, as they saw it in the Bible. Now, there was something so attractive about these people to me. I mean, these were the happiest people I had ever met in my life. 
and they weren't even stoned, you know? <laughs> they was, there was something about them that was, they, they were so serious about following Jesus with their whole life as they saw it in the Bible. But at the same time, they, they, there was this, um, this deep, infectious joy about them. And they were incredibly loving, loving to me, accepting of me, hospitable, and, and, and it was really apparent how they loved each other. Now, I had met, you have to understand, I had met a lot of religious people in my life. I had, I had visited Shinto shrines in Japan and Buddhist temples in Thailand. I, I had gone to Sarnath, where the Buddha had given his first discourse. I bathed in the sacred Hindu waters of the Ganges. I'd seen the golden temple of the Sikhs. I saw mosques all over the, the uh, Middle East. I, I went to the Vatican. I, I heard the Pope speak. I, went, I visited cathedrals all over Europe. I met a lot of very deeply devoted, serious religious people. But I had never met anybody like these ragtag bunch of hippie-like followers of Jesus at this place. So I was so impressed, I moved in. Right then and there. I didn't even go back to my cabin to get my stuff for a couple of weeks. Nobody knew what happened to me. <laughs> you know, so, you know, over a few weeks and months, I, I learned a whole lot about this Jesus that I decided to follow. I learned a, a lot about the Bible and the gospel and things like repentance and, and atonement and resurrection and whatnot. And I, I really had believed... I had found the key to the genuine kind of life, the, the good life that Marshall was talking about last week. You know, we believed that we could act because God was with us, the Holy Spirit was with us, that we could actually live this Jesus life, uh, that, that we could be his apprentices, if you will. Uh, and we also believed that we could put into practice what we read in the Bible. We actually even produced a, a radio pro, weekly radio program. It was called Practicing the Word. And we believed that, you know, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, that our lives would be changed to be more like Jesus. And, it, and we believed that we would change the world. Now, admittedly, um, I was a young, impressionable um, I super idealistic 20-year-old college student, you know, a, a product of the 60s and, and the age of Aquarius, if you will, <laughs> you know? But it did shape my worldview. It has shaped my identity. Uh, it shaped uh, my imagination for what my life could look like and my future could look like. And it shaped my view of what I thought the church should be. But more than a half a century has passed since then. And I've seen a lot 
like the commercial. I've seen a lot. You know, I have, be, I have been made painfully aware of my own shortcomings and my disappointments. You know, I have seen the vandalism of shalom. You know, I have seen and experienced division in the church, moral failures of church leaders. I've seen far too many divorces, broken relationships, broken families. I've seen the hypocrisy in my own life and in the hypocrisy in the life of other Christians. I've been dis disappointed by my own lack of, uh, of devotion and uh, holiness. I have honestly been frustrated with my lack of power and the lack of power in the church to heal and set people free. So does that make me a cynic, you ask, you know? Does that make me a cynic? Well, a bit jaded. <laughs> but I still hold to that original ideal. I still imagine a glorious church that reflects the very character and will of Jesus in the world. Paul wrote to the Philippians, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Shining like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, the crooked and perverse generation part, that's easy to comprehend. But the shining like stars seems like quite a stretch. I mean, why would anybody, why would I embrace that picture? Certainly not because of my efforts, my experience, or what I've seen but because I believe that this is at the very core of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached and demonstrated. So I want, I want to talk about imagination this morning. Now, by imagination, I don't mean, uh, you know, this fanciful, wishful um, dream that you might have, like you imagine winning the lottery which is never going to happen, by the way. <laughs> you know, but I, I'm talking about an imagination that is based in solid biblical reality. See, imagination is a powerful thing. I personally believe that none of us are going to live beyond what we can imagine that we can live, how we can live. See, if you can't imagine living free from your sin and your addictions and your selfishness and your depression, then, then you probably never will. 
live that life. I mean our real life. I'm talking about our real life here, the ordinary, everyday kind of life. Not, not your church life. That's a different life. You know, your, your singing worship songs life. I'm at, I'm at my finest <laughs> when I am worshiping. I mean, I am a worshiper, okay? But I, I you know, not your, your, your small group life. I'm talking about your real, ordinary life that you live every day. Your work life, your school life, your married life, your parenting life. You know, your, your uh, neighboring life, your shopping and play life. You, you know that life. See, if, if you can't imagine having a relationship with Jesus by the Holy Spirit that actually encompasses your daily activities, then you probably will never live that either. See, you might think, well, I'm talking about faith. I'm talking about belief. But I, I'm actually talking about something that's much more than just a mental assent to the dogmas that we hold. Or even to the confession of Scripture that is good for us to do. I'm talking about something that makes it more real, more colorful, more personal for us. Last week, Marshall began a new series that I'm really looking forward to on the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking about the availability of the kingdom of God and, and the good life that is available to us and God intends us to live. You know, we've been talking all Lent about sin and the vandalism of shalom. And I am so glad we're done with that. <laughs> that, was, that was so sobering and convicting and yet really good to hear. But the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out for us a very clear picture of what it means to live with him in this cooperative relationship, this good life. And Marshall and Jace and others, I mean, every week, for, all the way, I think, until July, will be kind of fleshing that out. What does that look like? The contrast between that and another kind of life. But, you know, what is the good life, the flourishing life, really look like? What is, what is it... Shalom look like in our, again, our very real everyday lives. What's true, what's real, what's good, what's beautiful. And I'll let those guys do the heavy lifting. But I want to talk about some basic underlying beliefs that are critical to actually living that kind of life. See, our beliefs determine our actions, but I mean our real beliefs, which often or can be different than our stated beliefs, even the beliefs that we tell ourselves. See, our actions are evidence of what we truly believe. For example, I may confess that I, I believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I, 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 I believe that uh, he that lends to the poor, or I mean he that gives to the poor lends to God. But if 
I consume all of my time, resources, and money on myself and my own family and my needs, then my actions betray my stated belief. See, if I believe that I should forgive others as Christ forgave me, and yet I hold a grudge against someone, then on a much deeper level, I believe that it's better for me, that it's in my best interest to not let them off the hook, to make them pay, squirm a little. Right? You know how that works. Those are our true beliefs, evidenced by our actions. You know, one belief that it is absolutely critical to living this kind of life is believing that Jesus is brilliant, the smartest person that has ever lived. Now, if you ask a whole bunch of people who, to, to bring to mind some of the smartest, the most intelligent people in history, you know, they might come up with people like, you know, Einstein always comes up, you know, Edison, uh, Da Vinci, maybe Elon Musk, you know. And, but not Jesus. People think of Jesus as holy, as good, as loving, maybe powerful, but not generally the smartest. But see, as the creator God, the one who holds all things together by his, own, by his word, even the molecules of our, our existence, the one who is the architect of human personality, who took on human flesh and experience life as we do. See, no one is more competent, smarter, or more insightful about how to speak into our, the very real situations that we face every day in our real lives. Which is to say that Jesus knows best how to flourish in your marriage to flourish in your parenting, to flourish on your job or in your finances, in your relationships. And he invites us to partner with him in all of these real areas of our life. Which brings me finally to my assigned text. Marshall. <laughs> Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I told Marshall when he assigned me these four verses that I thought that they were so loaded 
with implications. And, and on the other hand, so self-explanatory that I told him that, that I might just read it, drop the mic, and let it soak in. <laughs> but he didn't give me that mic. <laughs> you know, the two metaphors, salt and light, are, real, it's, are quite simple. Their purpose is to positively influence their surroundings. Salt was used in the ancient Middle East as a flavoring and as a preservative. But if it lost its ability to influence its surroundings, it was useless. So too would be a candlelight under a basket. But you see, in, in Jesus' description here, this is not any ordinary salt and light. This is the salt of the earth, the light of the world, which are, are pretty grand descriptions. So, who, who are the you in this? You are the salt. You are the light. Who are the you? Well, remember, this, this sermon is a unified sermon. Uh, it's not a, a whole, you know, a bunch of standalone truisms like the Proverbs. Jesus had just told us who the you were. You know, looking out at this sea of humanity that had gathered on this hillside, Jesus said, it's the desperate, the needy, the hungry, the grief-stricken, those that are suffering that are blessed because in Jesus, the kingdom of God was accessible, was available to them. See, they were the you are the salt, the light. You know, the kingdom of God has been defined simply as where what God wants done is done. Or another way, the range of his effect, effective will. It's not a place. The kingdom of God is not a place. It's not the church. It's not a future, something that comes in the future. But it's all around us all of the time, and is accessible. So the you is us. Ordinary, unqualified people who put their trust in Jesus and have found a new life in him. You are the light of the world. Now, I don't know if anybody else but me finds that to be quite strange, because in John 8 and 9, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So that's clear enough. Yeah, Jesus is the light of the world. But me, you, us together, that again is a stretch. But you see, that same metaphor is woven throughout the New Testament. Let me read a few. John 12, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Speaking of himself, walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. 
Or in Ephesians, Paul writes, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Or Peter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Sons of light, children of light, you are the light. Called into the light is the people of God. And all of that speaks about influence, right? The way that light affects, invades, permeates its surroundings. But what's the influence? It's more than the story that we tell, although we have the greatest story to tell. Jesus said, let them see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then much years later, Jesus is one of Jesus' best friends, Peter, wrote this to the church. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, he's not talking about us being do-gooders. The world is full of do-gooders that have no connection with God or, or, or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's lots of people who oppose God, and they do good. He's talking about something that's much more holistic, He's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about living the good life in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it actually reflects to your surroundings the very nature of God and the will of God. See, that's always been God's intent. From, from, we see it all through the Bible. That God has wanted to have a people that would extend his rule in the world and reflect his nature, his character. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was to be that people. But see, it was only when in Christ's coming, in his work, that the rule of God really became accessible, available, a way to live to those that would follow him and put their trust in him. See, and that's the big story. God is writing what's wrong in the world through Jesus in partnership with his people. Ordinary people, half-baked people, people like you and me. So to be a follower of Jesus is so much more than just having our sins forgiven so that we can someday go to heaven. Or having our sins forgiven so that we know that God loves us now. Or even being worshipers. See, it's a whole new life. A new life story that we live. Where our personal stories fit into 
his story, the big story. Todd Hunter wrote this, and I think he put it very well. He says, the Bible is a story, a grand and epic narrative. The scene is set, the plot, including the ending, is well developed, but there is still some way to go. And we are invited to become living, participating, intelligent, and decision-making characters within the story as it moves towards its destination. Because nothing has, has more control over us than the story we think we are living in, this narrative has a central place in my life and teaching. Story is the most powerfully decisive, organizing and shaping force in a person's life. So what's your story? What is the story that you are living in? Let me tell you a little story out of mine. In the, in the 80s, I took a six-year hiatus from pastoring, and I was managing a fire restoration company in, in Portland. And one day at lunch, lunch break, I was sitting out in the warehouse with, you know, my coworkers and employees and eating our lunch, and I don't know how the, the, the conversation evolved, but one young man made a very terrifying statement. He said, Steve is the only real Christian that I've ever met. And I went, oh my God. That is so humbling and so terrifying. They're watching. They're watching us. As I think of that, gr that group that was there that day, none of them were professing Christians. And I thought, not only are they watching, oh, how sad it is that I would be their best example. <laughs> no one knows better than me, well, except for my wife, Lane, <laughs> how far I, uh, short I fall from reflecting the life of Jesus in my real life. But there I was, clearly on display, a, l a lamp on the table. And that's the beauty and the grace and the mystery of the kingdom of God amongst us. Paul writes, we have this treasure in jars of clay, that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, so in your imagination, where is Jesus in your story? Is he a little bit removed? And yet, he's a very present help in time of trouble? Or is he more encompassing than that? I remember as a young Christian, I was told to accept Jesus into my heart. I'm a fairly smart guy. And I have watched a lot of TV medical dramas to know that if you open me up, there's not much room in there for anything, okay, else. But see, I also know that I'm more than my body. 
the kingdom of Steve, my effective will, the, the range of my effective will extends through my body but beyond my body. The kingdom of God amongst us, which comes to us as the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, is in us, moves through us, and surrounds us. The air around us. And it is accessible. It's available. Remember in Todd's statement, he says that we are living, participating, intelligent, and decision-making characters within the story. See, we can lean into, we can access live into that kind of kingdom living, that good life. But to participate, we have to believe that we can and decide that we will. C.S. Lewis wrote, Our faith is not a matter of our hearing what Christ said long ago and trying to carry it out. Rather, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his life, Zoe, into you. See, this is the story. It's, it really comes down to just a simple relationship with Jesus in the very ordinary challenging moments of our life. Like when I got here 20 minutes before the service, went to grab my briefcase with my notes and PowerPoint, and it was at home in my, on my counter, you know. Is, where is Jesus in my story at that moment? See, it's been said that if we try to, to keeping the law and if we misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount as a bunch of laws, it's like trying to make an apple tree bear peaches by tying peaches to its branches. See, what God is making us into the kind of people who naturally and joyfully reflect his love his mercy, his forgiveness, his justice in the world and go about setting things to right. Hunter describes it this way. He says, it as we're becoming the cooperative friends of Jesus, living in creative goodness for the sake of others through the power of the Holy Spirit. I like that. I'm going to read it again. We're becoming cooperative friends of Jesus living in creative goodness for the sake of others through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, all of this is predicated, I believe, on belief and imagination. See, does your story about Jesus, does that tell, just tell about his love and forgiveness and acceptance? Or does it also tell about his brilliance and his intelligence and his creativity? Is Jesus in your story the smartest person that has ever lived? 
which is to say that he knows best how you should live with your husband or wife. He knows best how you should raise your kids. He knows best how you should do your job or handle your finances. You know, those real bills that you face, that debt that you've incurred. He knows best. He knows best how to relate to those annoying people at work. You know them. You know? He knows best how to relate to those who've offended you, who've sinned against you. See, as creator God, who is better to inspire you to find solutions in your job? or insights into better ways to teach, to reach that student, or to give you skills in your craft, or beauty in your art. Creator God. See, in your story is the upside-down way that Jesus talks about doing life where the first are last and last first and the servant is the greatest and, the, and um, you find life and dying and turn the other cheek? Is that the best way to live in your story? Does, God, does Jesus get it? Does he get your stuff and what you're facing? Let's imagine, imagine that you're sent into your workplace with Jesus as salt. Not as a morality cop, God forbid, but rather the guy or girl, gal that everybody wants to work with. Because not only do you carry your own weight, you help carry the weight of others. Imagine that you're the light of Jesus sent into your school who goes the extra mile for every student and is there to encourage your fellow teachers. You know, Paul wrote this to slaves. He said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Really? Slaves, all your heart? See, imagine, imagine with me that everything that you did, that you put your hand to, was an offering to the Lord. Something of beauty, whether that was the curriculum that you wrote, the house that you decorate, the code you write, the furniture or house you design? What if it is all to be a beautiful offering to the Lord? See, imagine living that way. Imagine being part of a vital part of a church that actually practices the one another's of the Bible, where relationships last a lifetime. Because forbearance and forgiveness are what we do. Where we live not just for ourselves and for our own families and friends, 
but for others, for strangers, for neighbors, for immigrants. You know what? Imagine, we could go on and on imagining, right? But like the salt in Jesus' story here, if our Christian story does not progressively make us better persons, doesn't flavor our marriages or our families or our neighborhoods or our workplaces, flavor it with goodness and beauty, then it's useless. It's useless. We should throw out that story and embrace a new one. You're the salt of the earth, the light of the world, you. In the world that is so full of hatred and anger and bigotry and division and confusion and ugliness, it desperately needs the followers of Jesus to shine. <laughs> Peter said, even if the pagans accuse you of doing wrong, does that kind of sound at all contemporary and familiar? Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good life. They will see your good deeds and in the end glorify God. That is so attractive. That is so attractive. Just like that band of Jesus freaks that I first came into contact with. And here's the deal. We can never settle for less. We can never settle for less personally, for our marriages, for our families, for our church. We can never settle for less. This is the story that we've been invited into to live. <laughs>